Well, in the wind energy this week, there's been a lot of great news. Uh, TPI is hooked up with GE and it's maybe developing some of the next generation blades for, for GE. And that's an interesting topic. Uh, and we also look into LM Wind Power in India, uh, where they've finished their 50,000th blade. Congratulations to everybody there. And, and then the, the volcano in Tonga uh, created a massive number of lightning strikes, but it also puts debris in the air. And I, I asked a couple questions like, do we have to worry about that debris in the air when it comes to wind turbines that are nearby? And then we'll, we'll jump up to the North Sea, talk about Dogger Bank um, and the unexploded ordinance. Like, so it's been a couple of world wars up there. We've had a lot of things going on uh, and what they're doing to make sure that it is safe for uh, not only the infrastructure to go in the ground, but for the workers uh, that are out there putting it in. Uh, and then uh, the last thing we're going to talk about here is Polytech just just raised uh, or got a cash infusion of 135 million euros. So a uh, big amount of money flowing there. Uh, we kind of dive into if you are a company, what can you do to raise cash? Where can you go? Uh, what are some of the resources? So uh, it's going to be an exciting episode. I'm Alan Hall, president of WeatherGuard Lightning Tech, and I'm here with my good friend from Wind Power Lab, Joel Saxum, and the soon-to-be guest host of fully charged live event in Australia, Rosemary Barnes. And this is the Uptime Wind Energy Podcast. There's been some more news between TPI and GE. And it's good news for TPI. Uh, so TPI announced that they have extended the supply agreement with GE Renewables through 2025. That's that's not a, actually a long-term extension, but it's a good extension nonetheless. And they plan on working together on next-generation blade types, which was a little shocking to me because I thought that's what LM Wind Power was all about. Is that's where all the, the new designs were developed out of LM. So GE already has nine production lines with TPI, and now they don't don't make different blade types. At least we don't think that. I think there's multiple lines making the same blade, but nine lines is a, is a lot of production. Uh, and as we talked about previously in an earlier podcast, uh, they're going to reopen their plant plant in Iowa in beginning in 2024. That'll start ramping up actually this year, 2023. Mm-hmm. And TPI's been a long term supplier. Uh, to GE. And I didn't realize how long that was, but it, they started in 2008. So that's a pretty long relationship. It looks like that's going to continue. I guess the question mark is, where's LM wind power in all this? Because that's where the blade expertise has been for so long. You know, the first thing that triggers my mind here is when you said through 2025, and I was thinking, oh, that's a good, ex- that's a long extension. And then I looked in the corner of my screen, I was like, oh my, it's already 2023. That's not really that long of an extension. It's only a couple of years. And in the, in the manufacturing yeah. world, that's not really that long of an agreement, you know? Um, but yeah, so we, we were talking off air a little bit about uh, LM is, of course, owned by GE. So GE is going to go through their split up here, but healthcare, aerospace, uh, and then the renewables being GE Vernova. So we were all kind of curious here talking about um, what's the what's the play here? Is it LM has you know, been, been the engineering house for GE Blades for a long time um, and since, since they've taken them over and now TPI is going to be... Uh, also helping them with some design, didn't you say, Alan? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I know that TPI has some design 
uh, people because they're building blades for other companies. Mm-hmm. It's not just GE. So they have some design capabilities in-house. So, Rosemary, from your time at LM, what's your thoughts on it? Yeah, well, I'm a little bit out of date now because I think oh, it was, yeah, right around the time of the pandemic starting that I left. So that's already two, three, three years. It was 2020, right? So, yeah. It's like we're going too far in the future. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So I'm a bit out of date, but my my thought was, oh, gosh, uh, like I think that LM is going to feel a little bit uh, offended, insulted, slighted by this because, I mean, the whole point of LM is their, you know, blade design and manufacturing capabilities. And when um, LM, I was working at LM when they got bought by GE and the idea was that all of the blade design would would be taken by LM. Um, so this is kind of a step backwards. And yeah, of course, I don't I don't know how, how it's been taken amongst the staff, but I would assume that it it was a bit of a, a bit of a shock and a bit of an insult to them. Yeah. So one thing that we talked about was that it, it might be a, a protection kind of scheme on GE's side. So uh, it, it, as it sits right now, if they have TPI make blades for them um, and, and there's a error on the blades or a serial defect or a manufacturing issue that's found, then all of that honest doesn't fall right on GE as an OEM and hit their bottom line across their business because then it wouldn't be an LM issue. It would be a TPI issue, which would be separate than, than GE. So maybe, but- maybe it's a strategic thing going forward. Is TPI big enough, though, to, to wear a, a big problem like that? Because that was one of the points of the takeover was that LM on its own was not really big enough to uh, aggressively move into offshore because the you know dollar amounts are so big. And if you have a, a problem um, with a new you know offshore turbine after you've already sold yeah. a thousand of them, then that LM could not could not survive that. Whereas... GE as a huge company could. So I'm just wondering, yeah, it sounds great that, you know, our TPI will be responsible if they've designed and manufactured it, but it doesn't mm-hmm. help you if they go bankrupt in the process because you're still, you know, <laughs> yeah, they're yeah, not, no. not going to right. actually, um, you know, recoup your losses. So, um, yeah, I, I'm a bit, bit hesitant to say that that's, you know, clear cut benefit. I'm, I'm sure the reinsurance market is kind of licks their chops on those kind of things too, right? Because the premiums would be high if the capital isn't there within the um, the subcontractor to be able to float it. Well, does TPI become just the onshore blade manufacturer and LM transition only to offshore, maybe some local things onshore-wise, but there's going to be big money being spent in offshore wind blade design. Do they separate LM as a stand-up, standalone company as they transition in 2024 and get LM set up as an offshore blade expert, which is where it would naturally go anyway. It's longer blades, bigger projects, more difficult things to do. And TPI can handle the onshore stuff because they've shown they have the capability to do that. Is, is that where the separation line happens? And then LM wouldn't be so worried about it because realistically, uh, the big marketplace will be in offshore. It does sound like a very GE thing to do to buy a company and then, you know, like five years later, sell it again. Um, but, but, you know, it wasn't, isn't that GE of the past though? They haven't been doing so much of that recently. Yeah. They've been selling a lot of yeah. GE. That's just how we got down to three divisions. <laughs> a lot of it has been sold over the last 10 years. Yeah. You know, we could, t- we could look at the fundamental differences as well between TPI and LM to maybe uncover something here. So one thing that LM does that TPI 
does not, to my knowledge, is LM has an aftermarket services development department too. Yes. Like they have the, the power shells and some of their own vortex generators and some of that stuff right. that they create as products that can be sold onto multiple platforms. But TPI, I don't think does any of that. TPI is specifically Ooh, blades I, manufacturing. I could be wrong I, though. Joe, I'm, you know, I, I've been weirdly enough reading through some of the year end reports from TPI and things that they have offered. I do think they have some offer aftermarket offerings and some upgrade okay. offerings. I, I'm not sure they're doing a lot of it, but it, yeah. it, would make sense. You, you you almost have to. Your customers are going to, to demand it at some point that you be able to upgrade yeah. the blades you made. Why not? Yeah. Right? And yeah. it seems like a little bit of easy money. So it's this is just this is fascinating because there's gonna be a lot more shakeout like this. And we were talking about Vestas earlier and how Vestas has some blade issues. Everybody has blade issues, but for mm -hmm. Vestas it, it may may be you know a financial burden. What do you do? Do you continue to make blades or do you do you break that off into a separate entity just because of the risk involved? And like Rosemary said, if you if you don't find out until Blade One Thousand, you have an issue. You're yeah, in trouble. It's like sort of too late. Yeah, yeah, something to follow definitely. I mean, from on the surface level, we're all applauding. Great, moving forward is a big thing for the energy transition. Some agreements being signed, but uh, yeah. trying to understand. None of us are sitting in those rooms where these decisions are being made. So trying to understand them, I guess that's what we're here for. Well, you, you know, just on, on a similar note, you know, Vic Abate is now running the onshore division of GE, uh, and he used to run the renewables business for a number of years. And then when he ended up, I think he ended up in corporate R&D and helping them on sort of larger projects, and now he's back onshore. And when I saw him come back, he's a local kid, kid, he's not, he's not a kid, but he went to, he's from the town I'm in. Uh, when he came back on onshore, I thought, ooh, that's interesting. He was good on onshore when they were most when they were all onshore several years ago. So he knows that business. He knows the people. It wouldn't sh it wouldn't shock me that GE is going to really break into onshore, offshore, and LM is going to go to the offshore, and TPI is going to be the onshore. Some of those moves that GE makes at the sort of the sea level and in their uh, corporate structure can be indicative of where the future lies. And I I have seen a couple of articles mentioning that, and I, it, that would make sense to me. Because there's a sort of a steady hand that knows onshore and has worked with TPI and some others in the past to get that all ready to go for 2024. That, mm -hmm. that makes a ton of sense. So staying with LM, Wind Power, LM's division in India has completed their 50,000th wind turbine blade. That's a, that's a remarkable feat. That's a lot of, that's a lot of product. Uh, so it was made at their uh, blade manufacturing site in Betadora. Uh, I, I'm going to murder that name, and I apologize up front. Uh, but that operation began in 1994, making 13.4 meter blades. It's little tiny baby blades <laughs> today. They, it was a big they blade blades. Back then. Well, yeah, it's true, right? <laughs> right. It seems so small now, but now they're making what uh, 80 meter blades. Yeah, so that that makes complete sense. And they currently about 70 percent of the blades that are manufactured there are, are exported. So they're they're making blades that get sent all around the world. That's a that's a pretty remarkable feat. Fifty thousand blades is nothing. Is it just it's just a lot of time, a lot of effort. That's so amazing. Tying, tying those years again together, I'm thinking. So I'm I was born in 1987, 
So, and I'm thinking about 1994. I'm like, oh, that wasn't too long ago. But then now we're looking, it's almost 30 years, right? They've been making yeah. blades for almost 30 years at this place. Years, yeah. That's a lot. Yeah. 50,000 50, blades. So you're looking at mm, 12, uh, what? No, not 12, 1400 blades a year or something like that. That's a lot. Break it, keep breaking it down. Yeah, that's yeah. Uh, four yeah. a day. Yeah. It's pretty good production rate, isn't it? It, yeah. it, it, it's remarkable. Uh, then you think about how many blades that they have built and how many more they're going to build in the future. It, mm-hmm. Right. Joel, you were saying, I think you were telling me there was 120,000 wind turbines going to be installed in the United States, mm-hmm. right? So that's 360,000 blades. That's just in the U S so this, this yeah. factory has got to be busy. So congratulations to everybody in India. On yeah. this factory there. Yeah, that's, it's, they're going to have a good, that's the, good couple of years. The next seven years, next seven years is going to be cruising. <laughs> it's got to be good. Get the latest on wind industry news, business, and technology sent straight to you every week. Sign up for the Uptime Tech Newsletter at weatherguardwind.com news. So there's a big volcano that erupted a couple of weeks ago, the Hunga Tonga Hunga Hapai uh, volcano. <laughs> and it, it's, it was massive, Joel. It was, it was a huge uh, explosion. When you think about volcanoes going up, you think, oh, it's throwing rocks and lava and all the stuff, which it totally is, right? But all that yeah, ash absolutely. and junk, it, it throws, up, throws up in the air, creates lightning. It's, uh, lightning is static electricity that's created by friction in the air. And when you have all these little particles running against each other as being ejected miles high into the atmosphere, yeah. they create lightning. So they had almost, in a six-hour period, 400,000 lightning events around this volcano. That is crazy. And this, mm-hmm. and roughly half of the lightning in the world, on, I think on that particular day, was at that spot. That, that, wow. <laughs> that's, that's, a, that's remarkable, right? Uh, the guys over at Havisola, uh, Chris Vagaski, and if you, if you don't follow him on Twitter, you, you probably should. If you have, you're interested in lightning uh, to wind turbines and sort of the lightning de- National Lightning Detection Network, he, he put some really interesting Twitter posts up. Uh, he's they've been detecting at at uh, Vaisala, They've been detecting lightning for about forty years. He said this is by far the most extreme event that they've seen. In comparison, when they had the snowstorm in Buffalo in November uh, that I was near, there was about eleven hundred lightning strikes off the off the edge of uh, Lake Ontario. So you know, eleven hundred lightning strikes compared to four hundred thousand. <laughs> that tells you the size yeah, it's penis, of the event. Yeah. Yeah, right. So, you know, the lightning piece is interesting, but when it throws all that ash, that ash goes everywhere. It travels mm-hmm. all around the world eventually. Do we have problems or will we have a problem with a volcano letting up that much ash and running into wind turbine blades? Because I remember oh. when Mount St. Helen blew up and the, it, all the problems they had with jet engines, that all that ash is in the air and it would really eat up engines. In fact, they almost had an airplane crash when that happened. And from the, the ash and how everybody was diverting around it. And the Iceland, uh, but Iceland eruption more, as well. Wasn't there one in Iceland just a few years ago? Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, and all the planes were grounded right. and it caused, caused chaos with uh, people's travel plans in Europe. And they, yeah, it, it was very, yes. very disruptive. I forgot about that. But I don't recall any, so do, um, do these f- any wind turbine failures from it. Um, it. And I don't know if 
I don't know if we'd see failures. Yeah. I think we'd see – it would be like a lot of people on the phone with Aronis being like, hey, we need to get these things cleaned. <laughs> you know, because if you got any – yeah, if you got any kind of moisture and then that ash hits the blade, oh. even without moisture, I mean, it's just going to load up and create this mess. I think about when when you see those ads in the paper sometimes about cleaning your the the you know heating and ventilation air conditioning ducts at your house, right. and they show the picture of the inside of the duct where it's just this nasty conglomeration of dust and little stalactites, stalagmites inside of there. Right. I think that's what the blade would look like if it was in a heavy, you know, area of, of this down or of, of if that ash was coming down. So it would just be, we've got to, maybe we stop these things and we have to clean them all up or something, but I don't think we would see failures per se from it. Um, some, some plaguing so? issues, Even something, something annoying. Right. I mean, there's, uh, they've been active about in Hawaii and they've been talking yeah. about, aren't they shutting down a coal plant there? They're going to do some wind power projects there. That would be, I think it'd be a serious problem. I mean, More there, than was a, there was tsunami. a tsunami. There was an eruption of a volcano in New Zealand in like 2019 as well. That was only 20 kilometers offshore from the main island or something. And, and they have some wind over there, some wind uh, generation in New Zealand. And I, I don't know if it, how, I don't know if the, the ash plume affected or went in that direction. I guess we could look into that. Um, but you know, in the in the U, in the U.S., your from a volcano standpoint, Hawaii, yes, possibly. You keep hearing if you read, if you follow this kind of stuff, if you're interested in uh, geology and science, you hear Yellowstone could erupt. Uh, right. But if Yellowstone erupted, I'm going to be 100 percent honest with you. The wind energy is not going to be our problem. <laughs> We're going to have enough other problems, uh, or that's going to be kind of a tertiary thing. Um, as in growing food and whatnot, that might be a that that's probably what would be the issue. Um, but I think, yeah, so to to my thought from a pragmatic standpoint, now I'm not a blade expert like Rosemary is, but I would think it wouldn't be that much of an issue because it'd be an isolated event, right? It would only come. It it might be a, a really bad thing for 48 or 72 hours, and then after a week or two, all that stuff comes out of the air, and you just need to clean everything oh, up no, and kind Joel. of move forward. I, that's Does what I think out? too. Yeah. Uh, I can't tell you where I learned this, but I learned this from someone who actually knows this stuff. Uh, this is in the aviation side. So when sand gets picked up, like in the Sahara uh, Desert, mm -hmm. it goes around the world. It goes everywhere. Really? You'd be surprised at how much dirt and dust gets picked up and shuttled around. So if there's a volcano somewhere that debris is in the air a long time. Remember, even, well, I'll give you another example. Remember when they had the wildfires out in California? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Last was it last summer? The summer before? We we saw mm -hmm. that yeah, in Massachusetts. Last summer was really bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, yeah I remember yeah. a couple couple years ago. Couple years ago, Fourth of July. I actually have a picture of it. I was in northern Wisconsin, and they were having wildfires up in um, uh, and towards Rocky, like BC and Alberta, up that way. And a lot of that mm -hmm. smoke was coming down. And there's, a, I have a picture of a, some of my friends and I sitting on the back of a boat. And the whole picture is this yellow haze. And like, you can't actually even see this, make out the sun. And it was, and I mean, and we were thousands of miles away from these wildfires. But you're saying exactly that, though, in that wildfire, what that is, we're just thinking like, oh, it's this yellow haze. No, it's particulate matter in the yeah. air that's, that's so actually dense in the atmosphere that is blocking out the sun. Um, yeah. 
So, yeah, I mean, if that's a prolonged state now, so, okay, so those fires happened like that, that lasted in Northern Wisconsin, a thousand miles away from where the fires were for four weeks, three, four weeks. Right. That's a long and then time. It was, yeah. I don't know if it's enough time to, to damage a wind turbine to do to, to more I, than just kind of cleaning it up. I think blades have trouble with that. If you look at rain erosion studies, um, leading edges, the water droplet size and the hardness, all that matters. So if you start putting little slugs of volcanic rock in the middle of that, I, that can't go well. I, I think it's one of the problems that we're having actually is that on leading edges, we don't know what we don't know. And all the atmosphere in different parts of the world is just generically different. Uh, so what happens mm -hmm. in Denmark is not the same thing that happens in Wyoming, right? Mm -hmm. And we don't have a good handle on it. And when we start look, start thinking about expanding wind turbines and putting them more and more places, some of these events that we wouldn't have otherwise considered, why would any designer in Denmark think about a volcano on the other side yeah. of the world? That wouldn't even be in the realm of like discussion. I mean, maybe you kick it around at lunchtime as wild, crazy things you have to deal with. But I think they've become more and more a reality. I think we see it on the lightning side all the time that these different parts of the world behave differently. Volcanoes and tsunamis and these sort of things are going to become more prevalent. We're going to have to do some design around them, I think. So over in the UK, there's been a lot of war activities <laughs> since pretty much the dawn, since the Romans have been there. Uh, so there's a lot of warfare items in the water. And in World War One and World War Two, there was a whole bunch of ordnance dropped in the water on the sort of the shallow sea lines around in the on the coast of the UK in the North Sea. Well, if you're going to develop wind turbines in that area, you better find out if there's any ordnance down there, and if and is it in the way, or could you set it off? Well, uh, the smart thing to do is to to scan the bottom of the ocean floor. Well, in Dogger Bank, they're doing that. They've been working on it for quite a while, and they found some unexploded ordnance. They call it, and Joel, correct me on this because you know more mm -hmm. about this seafare stuff than I do. UXO, mm -hmm. that's it. That's the abbreviation, UXO. Yep. And they they put out a chart that said, "Hey, everybody, uh, there." <laughs> I, I, let me see how many there are here. I think there were two in one area. And yeah, there's two unexploded ordinances in Dogger Bank A and six in Dogger Bank B. So it's just like, I think there's four different sections, A, B, C, and D. So they're finding a total of eight unexploded pieces on the bottom of the seed out there. That's a problem. And they think that uh, there's over 100,000 tons of unexploded ordinance in, in that area. In general, just from World War One and World War Two, I and they're going to go out and have to. I, I don't know what they do with it. Do they have to yeah. detonate it? Is that what they'll oh, have yeah. to do? Just oh my god! Yeah, gosh, they get okay. they get a debt team out there. So, so how do they do that? Like, what is it, what's involved in doing that? So the first the first part of it is is uh, so you need to do like your site characterization survey. You're out there and you do a sonar mapping of the whole area, right? So you have now mm -hmm. you've got a map of the area on that map. Because of the shifting sands and scour and uh, all the subsea currents and whatnot, a lot of those things are buried. They're just subsea or they might be exposed or you don't know. But think about right. we're going to go out there and drive monopiles. So you better know what's down there at least 20, 30 meters. <laughs> you know what I mean? Otherwise, you might be pounding right into one of them that's been covered up over the years. 
So you go out and do a geophysical survey so you can see everything. Now you've got a visual representation of what's on the seafloor. But if you ever looked at any kind of, uh, you know, bathymetry or, or, you know, side scan sonar data, it's not really clear. It's acoustic bounce backs, right? Backscatter. Right. So it's not really clear what's down there. So sometimes you can see stuff beautifully, but it's not really that clear. So another portion of the site characterization survey is what yeah, people in that industry called, uh, well, we're going to go do a mag survey. So they drag these magnetometers, um, which are a lot of times have like a, a it's a, it's a half-life sensor somewhat so there's like cesium in them in some mm. of them but cesium reacts with water right explodes but you right. gotta put the thing in the right. water so, so right. either way but the, the sensors are all sealed up and they drag them behind a vessel usually it's like a like a, uh, they call it like a flyer almost and it's kind of pulled behind because you don't want to be too close to the vessel because the vessel will mess up your mag magnetic readings Oh, sure, sure, sure. You know what I mean? So so yeah, they'll drag yeah. these things sometimes way back, and there's a couple of really cool companies out there now that are trying to get them on, like, flying wings to get them closer to the seafloor. And and um, so you want to keep the, the, the instrument the same height from the seafloor all the time because you're reading – you're reading a, a signal strength. So if you keep getting further and closer and further and closer, then it's tough to equate that to what's on the bottom. Because if okay. something is a, a, a metal pop can at 10 meters is going to have a signature of X. And if it's here at 20 meters, it's going to have a signature of Y, but you want to know, right. you want to have an even thing, right? So you do this mag, uh, magnetics magnetometer survey of the whole area as well. And then you'll have a map basically of signal strength of whatever would be a magnetic like a ferrous reading on the seafloor. Some of that could be, it could be a shipwreck. Uh, you know what I mean? Oh, it could sure. be, it could be um, a yeah, treasure. It could be, it could be an anchor from a boat. You don't know what it is. Right. <laughs> so, so they, they will find these hot spots, then they'll equate it to the, the scan, the side scan sonar data. So they can look at it kind of visually. And then they'll go out there with a, an actual ROV, a subsea robot with a camera on it and go down and actually see what it is. If they can see anything there. Once they have, an, it's it, it's it's pretty in, de in depth, right? So, but once you have an yeah. idea of what's there, uh, then it goes into okay, this is UXO. Now we need to uh, get rid of it. Well, if you're looking at a 70 year old unexploded bomb, like you don't want to bring that up onto a vessel. You know what I mean? Like, 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 all right, someone throw a rope around it. Let's get it up here and get rid of it. Like, no, it's not how it works. Right. So you'll, they'll, they will go down there with our, with our specialized ROVs and equipment and monitors. Sometimes they'll have two ROVs. So one ROV can watch the other ROV as it works to make sure that it doesn't touch anything. And they'll actually do, um, like if you've ever watched any military stuff or whatever, when they have a piece of ordnance they need to explode, they explode it with more ordnance. Um, and then they'll they'll put triggers on it that are triggered by sonar and whatever. And then they'll back the back the whole caboodle off a kilometer or two, and then uh, send an acoustic signal to the detonator on whatever's down there, and boom, blow it up. Do you think that some of them are really actively live after oh, yeah. seventy years? There yeah. was there was there was one just um, not a few months ago in German waters, and it was in a river that was like near a port. And uh, there's a cool video on YouTube of it somewhere where they're like, yeah, they detonated. And boom, you see the big water column boom, shoot up in the air, you know, like 50 feet or something. But yeah, I mean, you'd be amazed at where that, that UXO is. There's a, they'll, they'll find some 
on the East Coast while we were from World War II, while we were developing these wind farms for sure. So how long would it take to do all the scans and analysis? Is, is this a, like a year-long process? The weather in the North Sea is not yeah. great either. It seems like there's a small window of opportunity for this. Yeah, I mean, site characterization for a wind farm, is, a lot of it has been going on off the East Coast for four and five years. People just don't know about it, right? It's because it's not something that's been really uh, publicized. So you're you're not only doing those things, but then you're going to be drilling for geotechnical surveys and using uh, near surface seismic refractants to find boulders and stuff like that under the subsurface. And how deep is the how deep is the silt until you hit you know hard rock until you hit bedrock and all these different things. So not only do you need to characterize what you can see on the surface as far as what you're going to work with, but also all of the subsurface below the seabed you need to characterize as well to understand foundation design. So it's a um, it's a very very in depth process. Like I, I know people that were uh, a great company called Terrasound. They were doing um, geophysical surveys off of the East Coast for offshore wind back in 2019 and 2018. Mm. They wow. made a killing doing it too. <laughs> wow, it, it just seems like a really complicated process that there's really no way to get around it. You have to be careful. You know that it's there. Yeah. So, so we were talking, yeah, it, it's there. It's going to happen. You've got to make sure you do it. It's not something you're like, well, I don't think there's anything in this area. Nope. You got to do every square inch of the damn thing. And so we were talking earlier about the shortage of, of people to, to go offshore and work. This is an industry that is highly specialized, right? There's not very many uh, educational institutions that can teach you how to go offshore and do geophysical sonar surveys, but then tie them into all the surveying things. Like there's, there's one school in the United States that teaches that or in the North America that teaches that specifically. And it is, um, Memorial university in Newfoundland. Really? Yeah. They're, they're geomatics in programs. Why yeah. Is it there? but there's, that's a maritime community, buddy. Newfoundland, Canada. Oh no. Yeah. I mean, it's right on the water, yeah. but why that? It's there. If you look at high order, like high order charting and subsea surveying and those kind of things, it's very, uh, very, very specialized. Sure. So, okay. so that's All one right, of the yeah. schools in the, in the world that offers that, that degree program. If you go, if you, if you meet, or if you're down in Houston and you're in an oil and gas thing, you'll run into a bunch of Newfoundlanders and it's because of the, the schooling that they all got up there. They, they graduated cool. into Houston. Yeah. Wow. Well, there's, there's, going to be a lot of this activity. And I know we talked about all the offshore uh, wind turbines going to be placed in California and sort of the really deep waters. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Do you do the same thing? And when it's a thousand yeah. feet, 2000 feet down, can you do the same sort of thing versus a hundred feet down? Yeah. I mean, it's a lot easier and cheaper in shallow water, um, but you can def- you do it in the deep water as well. Uh, one of a, a really cool company, if anybody wants to look into them, Ocean Infinity, um, they have the, what they call now the Armada fleet that they designed, which is a, it's a fleet of uncrewed ships. They're not uncrewed like little boats. They're like, man, I think the Armada fleet is like 50 or 60 meter long vessels with not a person on them. They're ghost ships. But what they, yeah. And what ocean infinity does is they run that ship on the surface and then that yeah. ship will dr- drop off what, um, They've been using Hugen's. Hugen is a made by Kongsberg. 
it's a it's an AUV, so an autonomous like underwater vehicle, but basically a little submarine that has all the sensor packages on it. And then those go into the water and they spread out like a swarm in a line and the vessel on the top tracks every one of them. And then they do the surveys in the deep water. So those those AUVs may be down 1,500 meters in depth in the water, only only 50 or 100 meters off the seafloor, and the ship on the surface is tracking all of them. And then when they run out of juice, they come up, boom, download data, and then charge them up and go back down. So that's, that's so amazing. that they used Ocean Infinity went out for a couple months and mapped a massive portion of the uh, Indian Ocean during that MH. 370 when nobody could find that plane yes yes so so they've they took that on that was one of their big first um deployments of this swarm technology and then they've been subsequently doing a lot of like surveys on spec because they can do them fairly cheap with this not it's not cheap (laughs) but a lot cheaper than just going out there with one boat and and trying to survey everything um, they've done a lot of stuff for governments, looking for planes, looking for uh, shipwrecks, and of course, mapping for oil and gas, mapping for ports, mapping for other things as well. But yeah, it's same thing. When you go to floaters, you've got to get the same data and you got to get the same kind of resolution on it. Um, so yeah, you t- you, there's there's ways to do it. Um, the technology's well, there and it's growing. Maybe they'll hear this podcast and we can get them on. That would be really a cool interview. Yeah, absolutely. So there's a lot there I haven't learned, and I just don't know a lot about it, but it seems like a super complicated task to perform efficiently. The area of oh, man. ground we're talking about is massive. Yeah. Lightning is an act of God, but lightning damage is not. Actually, it's very predictable and very preventable. Strike Tape is a lightning protection system upgrade for wind turbines made by WeatherGuard. It dramatically improves the effectiveness of the factory LPS so you can stop worrying about lightning damage. Visit weatherguardwind.com to learn more, read a case study, and schedule a call today. I woke up this morning and I noticed that Polytech, we're recording this on a Thursday, so uh, when you hear this played, it, it comes out next Wednesday, so this news will be a little behind, but not much. But Polytech had a 135 million euro uh, infusion of cash from FS and Capital and Verdane. And Verdane had had already invested into Polytech several years ago, 2016, 2018, something like that. Uh, it's, so both Verdane and FS and Capital are, are venture capital funds that are in the renewable energy space and, and other areas. At, at the time, when I first heard it this morning, it kind of made sense because there's just been a lot of, of – uh, noise about this behind the scenes. I think really since probably last November is when just rumors, you hear things, people are talking about it. Yeah. So that still has to go through regulatory approval. And from just some news articles today, it looks like uh, FSN Capital is going to own about 40%, which is the minority stake for Dean's must be, I'm assuming it has the 60% share and it's something close to that more than 50%. So they split the company between these two venture capital funds. And I, I think everybody's in the same boat right now. It's smart for Polytech to do this, I think, Joel, is, is yeah. the next year or so is going to be a little bit rough. And you need that buffer mm-hmm. on a growing business. And Polytech's a growing business. Does, does this make sense to you? 
Yeah, I mean, in the industry, a lot of people know Polytech as the people who make the the shells, right? They make the leading edge protection shells, but that's that's not just what they do. They do a lot of other things, uh, specifically in the lightning protection space, and and I do a right. lot of other stuff with with different R and D and plastics and some innovative uh, items. I, I was surprised to see the 135 million because that's just a lot of cash. Um, uh, and and maybe it's my ignorance of not knowing how big uh, uh, Polytech is and, and every, everything that they do, but I would hope that that would help them survive over the next few years if there's a couple of uh, couple of lean moments. Um, but also for FSN Capital and Verdane, the renewable energy space is a hot space to get into, right? So there's not right. there's not a, there's not a ton of uh, you know, and there's not a massive amount of um, companies that provide aftermarket products for wind turbines. Um, and uh, Polytech is definitely one of those at the, you know, as the market sees them kind of at the top of the heap. So so kudos to those guys. I think that uh, the, the long haul here for Polytech will will be a, a lot of growth. Uh, I don't see I don't see the a massive amount of risk in them right now, to be honest with you. So do you think they expand operations? They have a place in China, if I remember correctly, and I think one in India, if I remember all this correctly. Do, do they start expanding into the U.S. a little bit more than they have? Do they go to South America, hit Brazil a little bit? Yeah, I mean, Brazil, of course, Northeast Brazil, really rough market for LEP, um, so, or really right. good good market for LEP protection. Um but I, I, you know, from a personal standpoint, I would love to see more companies having a presence in the in the wind industry in the U.S. I can completely understand that manufacturing may not be in the cards, but it would be great to see a, a Polytech office, a poly, some Polytech people, a bigger presence over here. Um, I'd love to see some R and D go on over here from them. Uh, as you know, as the world knows, the the U.S. market is large uh, for wind turbines and is growing. Um, Polytech does a lot of stuff for offshore wind, um, so we are, you know, poised to to shoot to the moon and offshore wind over here as well. So there's definitely a huge market for them. Um, mm. And uh, I, I was hoping, you know, because I hear in the whispers behind the, the scenes of what's going on with Polytech, what's going on with Polytech, I would have loved to have seen some capital groups from over here uh, invest and and bring I, a chunk of them. I thought the same thing. Yeah, yeah, Joel, I was thinking the same thing this morning. Where are the U.S. investors in this if there's a big push for getting into the yeah. clean energy space? Seems like an it, obvious it's, choice. It's, you know, I was – so along the same lines, I was speaking with um, some friends and colleagues in the space as well that have a, uh, a really innovative company and they're based out of Denmark. And they're in the middle of raising some capital. And, mm. uh, you know, I kind of asked them like, you know, you guys are a really cool company and you're doing some great things, but you are a – at the end of the day, you're a small company in an office in Jutland, in the middle of Denmark. Like it's you don't have very good visibility. It would be it would be smart to come over here, send send the the investment team over here for a month and do some rounds, spend a week right. or two in Boston, come down to Houston, go out to Silicon Valley or, or San Francisco or something of the sort, and see what you can find uh, in this side because. If you can get the big time capital from some players over here, that will help you with your exposure over there as well, right? So sure. we've seen that once, once, and and this isn't me trying to be that, that ignorant, arrogant American, but once some of these companies from that side of the pond come over here and set up a presence, they 
they blow up, right? They they do very well. Right. So so um, I I would love to see more more investment and and those kind of things coming from our side uh, and get a couple of these companies here or. Someone, someone, start a company in the U.S. that does aftermarket products for wind. We will put you on the podcast. We'll support you all the way. Make a good product. Yes. Um, but well, yeah, if let's let's walk through that, Joel, because I, I think you raised a couple of good points here. Mm-hmm. If you are a, a renewable energy startup, particularly in the wind business, where would you go in America? to to find funding is it just boston and houston and silicon valley is that is that where you go right now and, and are those are those vc firms that are in those places investing in non-american entities yeah i mean so in boston you have a really good innovation hub right you got mit there you got some great universities there but there's also groups that have started out like some of them have boiled out of those universities right but you have like greentown labs and, and those other ones there and I know that Greentown Labs and those entities want to invest or those groups want to invest into American innovation. I uh, completely understand that. Um, come over and set up <laughs> set up an LLC. Now you're an American company. Um, yeah. Really. It's, it's that easy. Uh, you know, the money, the money doesn't the money isn't coming directly from Boston, right? That's where the groups are. A lot of that money is coming from New York. A lot of that money is coming from other places in the world. Uh, or but but the the people doling it out and writing the checks uh, are in those spaces so there's a ton of opportunity now i'm just talking boston there now if uh my old stomping grounds in houston you have the ion is a great space there's greentown labs there's tx there's 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 tx rx there's there's a handful houston is right now being touted as um like uh Jane Stricker and their group over there, they're, they're being touted as the, the energy transition of the world. It used to be the energy capital of the world, still are, but now the energy transition capital of the world. So there's a lot of uh, money being put into uh, everything and anything renewables there. You have all the big energy companies, all the big oil companies. Rice University has a great booster kind of th- program going down, the incubator going there. Um, and it's down there when you sit in these groups and you give a you go to a pitch competition the people sitting in the crowd aren't random vcs that you've never heard of it's chevron technology ventures and bp ventures and shelve it's people with real capital sitting there going licking their chops you know what i mean because they want the next big thing so um if i was a european company or a startup the european vc setup just isn't there right now like the, the cash isn't there I would be over here looking for money. And the first conversation we maybe even to have is, hey, we're from Denmark or Germany, Spain, right. wherever. What can we do to – because a lot of these places, they're going to want to invest in the U.S. companies, but some of them won't care either. If you're a good investment, you're a good investment. They don't care. Um, so – I would be over here looking for cash, um, and and I guess some of that comes from a pragmatic view, but also from a emotional view. I want to see I want to see more renewable energy companies and and energy or companies supporting the energy transition in the U.S. I want I want, I'd like to see that. Well, when we saw the Aronis investment recently, mm-hmm. they're based they're they're an LLC or incorporated. Maybe they're just incorporated in Delaware. And I yeah, think smart. when we, yeah, that was really smart, yeah, right? Yeah. And they had a, I think their mailing address was in Palo Alto or somewhere in California. So yeah. they, some, they played some, the game. Some law right? office. Yeah. It's smart. Right. Yeah. And, and they got 39 totally million smart. bucks. They got $39 yeah. million. Dollars. They got, right. so now they've so, got runway. 
That's and that makes a lot of sense, right? So there are a couple of hurdles you you would need to do to get access to that money, but I I think the entry barriers are relatively low. And if I was going to yeah. do something like that, who would you call first? I would I would call Dana's Cruz and say, Dana, Yeah, what, how does this the, go? What's the play? What's the playbook, buddy? Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Alan, you and I can get off this phone call and by before we go to bed tonight, we can have an LLC set up in an office wherever we want Absolutely. in this country. It's not yeah. a problem. Um, and no. that's not just because we're Americans. It's because it's that easy. It's easy. Yeah. Right. It's a lot easier in the States than I, I'd say most European places. Oh, yeah, definitely. That's, that's the beauty of it, right? And yeah, like we've said many times on the podcast, there's 70,000 going to be close to 200,000 200, wind turbines. In America, this is the, and this is the place. Brazil obviously can be another hot spot. Europe generally overall. Canada's Canada's blowing Canada? going. I mean, Australia. There is so many turbines being installed in Alberta and Saskatchewan right now. It's crazy. And if you're supporting the market here, you know how easy it is to do that. It's just like drive around in Europe, just rip across the border. It's, it's we it's, have we have an agreement that says you can do it. So, yeah. Well, and I think this is what it's hard for some of these companies that are based in Europe to, to conceive of mm-hmm. how to make this transition. It's it's a lot, right? You're moving two thousand miles away. You could start yeah, somewhere easy able- too. Yeah. Get get, get well, someone you trust in this, like get someone you trust in the states and hire them as a BD person or a salesperson. And right. once and one and once you've got that kind of down. Then, then it's like, all right, now we've got some trust. We've been in the market. We know some things. Then you have that person uh, help you out. We could look at our friends, our friends from Ping. That's that's yes. what math. That's what exactly Matthew and, what and, and the crew have done. They've and they've done a great yeah. job. They've got a. They put a person in Europe. They put a person in in the state or two people in the states now, uh, right. and yeah. and some uh, and some other strategic places. And once you kind of got that set up, then boom, 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 the the, the, the dominoes start to fall. Yeah. And I think in the one place where it, there seems to be activity in this uh, way is in Rhode Island, right? In Providence, Rhode Island, there is yeah. a renewable wind, mostly wind energy, actually, mm-hmm. uh, space that's dedicated mm-hmm. to international companies setting up and getting into the United States that way. So it isn't. It wouldn't be like you're by yourself if you're from Denmark. You wouldn't be. Pretty much everybody in that space, I think, is from Denmark. So <laughs> yeah, you can a little get, bit you like can, home. You can get a rye bread sandwich, open face sandwich at lunch at the at CIC <laughs> Providence. <laughs> but those places, if you if you're not familiar with them, they would seem completely foreign to you. Yeah. Uh, why why would I think that Rhode Island would have anything for me in terms of getting into America? But that tends to be the runway in right now. You know, it, you know, and one other thing to mention here too, and this is just from a per, from personal experience. Americans are fairly open with who they do business with, but if you give yes. them an option, they want to do business with Americans. And I know that's a, a, a kind of an odd thing to say, but if you if you come over here uh, from you're a German technology company and you come over here, well, actually, let me shift gears. If you come over here and you're a British company and uh, you you walk right in and you and you do business how you would do it in in Britain or in Germany or in Sweden or Denmark or wherever else. Americans at some level will have their hair up a little bit. So my sure. my my suggestion is is if you are one of those companies coming over, find an American that you trust and 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 use them to to bring you over um, because it's it, it it's easier to open doors that way. Well, I, Joel, that's really good advice, and 
I, I know because of some of the feedback we've been getting over the last several months, there's so many startups in the wind space that are listening to this podcast and, and what can we do to help them? This is really good advice. They said, play this yeah. back and take our advice and reach out to us, uh, especially yeah. Joel. Yeah, we're Joel has been doing this thing, right? Joel's mm -hmm. been the BD director for Wind Power Lab for a while now. Uh, and mm -hmm. it, it just knows the ropes and obviously uh, Matthew at Ping. So reach out. We're here. We're here to help. Yeah, absolutely. That's going to do it for this week's Uptime Wind Energy Podcast. Thanks for listening. Please take a moment and give us a five-star rating on your podcast platform. And be sure to subscribe in the show notes below to Uptime Tech News, our weekly newsletter, which has exploded lately. Joel, it has gone That's big great. time. Uh, and I'm also, a part of it and I read it. Sorry. <laughs> yes, I do too, religiously. Every week. I read it every week. Uh. So also join uh, Rosemary's YouTube channel, Engineering with Rosie, and we'll see you here next week on the Uptime Wind Energy Podcast.